You know, I remember there was a time in my life when I felt like the Bible was a real big book. And uh, that time of life has continued into the present. It is, a, it is a big book. And there's lots of information that is here. And there's all kinds of commands and commandments that God has in here for all kinds of, of different people in this book. Now, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, that the Bible was written to three different groups of people. And for that reason, okay, now, now listen very carefully, and if you're accustomed to going to a place to where, you know, they just kind of warm things up, we're not warming anything up now, we're there, all right? The Bible is written to three groups of people, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, and because of that reason... The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 that we are to study, to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that need not to be ashamed. Listen to this. Here's the reason for the study. So that we might rightly divide the word of truth. Now what that lets you know is that if you do not study this book, it is very possible that you will, what? You will wrongly divide this book. So, and we say this so often. You've got to be real careful with this book that we call the Bible. People want to just, you know, hop on in there and just, you know, start grabbing this and that and the other thing. And what God tells us is, no, that's not the way that you approach this book. This is a book that is to be studied so that you make the right division so that you know what applies to you and what does not and in what dispensation and as far as rightly dividing the word of, of truth and from the standpoint of, of having your understanding of the Bible open to you I, I showed you last week why Revelation chapter 11 is the most important chapter in the entire Bible and I know that sounds like a an incredible thing that we could find one that we could designate as being more important than another I'm saying as far as you understanding the Bible having the Bible open to you so that you rightly divide it this is the chapter of the Bible and the reason that we say that is because there's three books of the New Testament that, that mess a lot of people up these are three books you better make sure that you understand those three books are the books of Matthew the book of Acts, and the book of Hebrews. But you'll never understand those three books unless you understand the Old Testament. That's the key to understanding those three books. But if you're going to understand the Old Testament, you've got to understand the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is where all of the Old Testament was pointing to. So you've got to understand the book of Revelation to understand the Old Testament. And if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, you must understand Revelation chapter 11 and so last time what we did we spent our entire time just showing you why all of that is true and we won't go into all of it uh, again but let me just say this just as a reminder and because we're going to connect on a lot of these things as we continue this morning the bottom line of what we saw is that your interpretation of what we see here in Revelation chapter 11 is going to determine whether or not you properly place the Jew in the Bible. Now, in the book of Proverbs, what we find is that the Bible says 
Remove not the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. It goes on in the very next chapter to say that if you do remove that ancient landmark, you will move yourself and find yourself into the fields of the fatherless, in a place where there are no landmarks, a place where you, you think, yeah, yeah, we're, we're right here, yeah, we know where we are. And you think you're there, for sure, where you are. And from an inspirational sense, if we're going to take the Bible, the ancient landmark of the Bible is the Jew. And if you lose the Jew in the Bible, what's going to happen to you in this book is you're going to enter into the fields of the fatherless spiritually, thinking you're one place, and all of a sudden, somewhere along the way, finding out you're not where you thought that you were. So all of that to say, Revelation chapter 11 is a very, very key book of the Bible, or a key chapter of the Bible. And you'll remember that most of chapter 11, as we've already talked about, this is just to kind of bring you back in, you'll remember that most of chapter 11 is part of a parenthesis that began back in chapter 10. Now, now just cruise back with me, and I want you to just follow some things with me here. But we came to Revelation chapter 8 and verse 6. And you'll remember here that John began to bring us through the tribulation period for the second time in the book of Revelation. And what he begins to do here in chapter 8 and verse 6 is he begins to bring us through the tribulation period through the figure of seven trumpets that were being sounded by seven angels. Now, cruise back with me, if you will, to chapter 6 for just a minute. You'll remember that he brought us through the tribulation period for the first time in Revelation chapter 6 through the figure of the opening of the seven seals. We came through that in chapter 6. You'll remember that chapter 7 was a parenthesis. It wasn't taking us further down the road. What it was doing is explaining events that were taking place during the opening of those seals. Then we come to chapter 8 and 9. Now listen real carefully. In chapters 8 and 9, the first six of those trumpets sound. Okay, and remember, the sounding of these trumpets, he's bringing us once again through the tribulation period. So he does that. And those first six trumpets sound in chapters 8 and chapter 9. And then chapter 10, just like chapter 7 was a parenthesis, chapter 10 begins a parenthesis as well. And you'll remember as we made our way through chapter 10, you can look at it there in verse 1. And we saw that in this chapter, what John shows us is the completion of the mystery. The completion of the mystery. And man, it was just absolutely incredible. In verse 1, we saw the mighty angel of the Lord. And who is that, y'all? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw him there with clouds of glory surrounding him as a robe, with all the the, the brightness and the radiance of the sun upon his face and as the sun passes through those clouds of glory you'll remember that it forms a rainbow upon his head that serves as a crown it says that his feet as pillars of fire and those those feet they burn with all of the the raging roaring fire of a powerful furnace and he he comes down from heaven and he stakes his claim on what is his uh, psalm 24 and verse 1 the earth 
is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we saw his right foot stands upon the sea. And the scripture says that his left foot stands upon the land. And he takes the word of God, which is the title deed of the earth, in one hand. And he raises his hand toward heaven in the other. And he vows that the time of his judgment has come to this planet. And he says that there will no longer be any time delay before the suffering Savior becomes the conquering king. And we see that that's what takes place in chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. This is the crowning of the Messiah. The crowning of the Messiah. But before we get there, there's one more thing that he wants to, to show us that was happening during the sounding of those six trumpets. Okay? And that is the coming of the messengers the coming of the messengers and of course these messengers are the infamous two witnesses that are so often talked about when people talk about the book of Revelation we're going to begin talking about them today but before we do I'd like for us to read the passage together so you at least know what all is going on here Revelation chapter 11 verse 1 it says and there was given me this is John a reed like unto a rod and the angel stood saying rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and then that worship therein but the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months and I will give power unto my two witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power, these two witnesses have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony... The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer or allow their dead bodies to be put in graves." They that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear, as you can imagine, fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. Hour was there a great earthquake and... The tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the raiment were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Now, so you can see where all of this is heading. Let me just give you a little preview of the outline that we're going to be following in this passage. We won't make it all the way through this outline, but so you can see where we're going. First of all, we're going to see in verses 1 through 5, the warrant assigned the witnesses the warrant assigned the witnesses 
Then in verse 6, we're going to see the weapons allotted the witnesses. The weapons allotted the witnesses. Then in verses 7 through 10, we're going to see the war against the witnesses. The war against the witnesses. And then we'll see in verses 11 through 13, the work avenging the witnesses. The work avenging the witnesses. And for those of you that like to study, you can already see where the outline is going to go probably for the next two more weeks after this one. But let's look at this first one. The warrant assigned the witnesses in verses 1 through 5. And look with me, if you will, again in verse 3. And we notice here in verse 3 that the angel who began speaking to John in verse 1 is continuing his conversation here in verse 3. And, and this is the same angel. Now make sure that you got this. This is the same angel that was talking to John in chapter 10, the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? If there was any doubt whatsoever about whether or not that angel in chapter 10 was really the Lord Jesus Christ or not, verse 3 of chapter 11 definitely settles it because listen to what the angel says in verse 3. And I will give power unto who? My two witnesses and folks I guarantee you that these two witnesses in the tribulation period that we just read about are not going throughout this earth testifying and witnessing to any angel I don't care how mighty that angel is these two men are witnesses of the only name given among men whereby we must be saved amen they are witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ and what we see in this passage is he the Lord Jesus Christ warrants them in other words he gives them authority and power and the reason he does is because he has a very special assignment for them again they are to be his witnesses witnesses of jesus christ and they are to prophesy verse 3 says for a thousand two hundred and three score days one thousand two hundred and sixty or in other words these men come onto this earth and witness in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. God just spells it out for you in days there. Three and a half years is 1,260 days. And I'll tell you what, I would love, I would just absolutely love to hear these guys preach. Not enough to stick around through the tribulation period to hear it. But I would absolutely love to hear these guys preach. I mean, it, it's going to be, y'all, some major hellfire and brimstone. Because look, look, at, look down at the end of verse 10 again. Check it out, man. These two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. Amen? That's their assignment. See, that's why you like coming to church here, isn't it? Because that's what, exactly what we do here. We torment them that dwell in Tuscarawas County and beyond. Okay? Now, the identity of these two special people that we're talking about here in this chapter, that's where everybody immediately, that's where they want to direct their attention. We want to, okay, now who are these guys? Okay? But before we get into all of that, there, there's something here that, that I want to make sure that you don't miss, and that is the special place involved the special place involved all of the events this in this passage center their attention in a very special place now now let me just tell you ahead of time 
we're going to take the rest of the time this morning to talk about this special place. You know why we're going to take that much time? Because it's a real special place. And listen, when you see what, what's really behind this place, the Bible will open up for you like you, you never, never could imagine. For some of you, part of this this morning is going to be a little bit of a review. But you know what? You've never, I, I, I would just bet you that most of you have never quite seen it all come together like this. So I want you to listen very, very carefully, even to the things that some of you think, hey, I got that thing down. Yeah, I understand all that. All right. Now, I want you to think with me for just a minute. Okay, we're living, obviously, in 1998. And at this time in man's 6,000-year-old history, there is one particular place on this planet that gets more attention than any other place. It's a city that is at the center of more conflicts and is the subject of more continuous controversy and is absolutely the most contested piece of property on this entire planet. There's not another city in the world that is of greater importance to worldwide peace than this city. Now, what, what city is it that we're talking about? We're, we're talking about Jerusalem, okay? The, the, the city whose name just happens to mean the city of peace. Go figure. Now, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about it, but have you ever tried to figure out why? I mean, what logical explanation can you give for this, this seemingly insignificant piece of property being the focal point of the entire world. I mean, have you ever tried to figure that thing out? What is the appeal? And, and we know this, we know that it's not because of the natural resources that it holds in abundance, because quite honestly, it really doesn't have that many. Nothing that would cause it to be the focal point of the world. We know that it's not because of its strategic location, because it, it's not like a Chicago it's not like a New York City. I mean, you can just look at a map and understand what, the significance of those cities and how they became what they became it's because of where they're sitting. It's not because of the appealing climate. I mean, it's not like a Los Angeles that's just sitting in this, this part of the world where, I mean, wow. If you've ever lived there, that, that place is, if you can handle the smog, it's pretty cool. An, an incredible place. It's not because of the incredible population of this city. Now, there's a lot of cities on this planet that, man, they get a lot of attention just because of the amount of people who live there. But I, and we're talking about in the city of Jerusalem, we're talking about a city that really has very few more than a half a million people. So it's none of this stuff, but what is it then? I mean, really, I want you to think with me. What, what explanation can you have for this piece of of property being the hot spot of the entire planet. And, and I would submit to you that it's not because of what's necessarily happening there right now. Not because of what's happening there right now, but listen, because of what did happen there in the past. And because of what will happen there in the future you say well, well what are you what are you saying well, what I'm saying is that the only explanation for the unique place the city of Jerusalem holds on the world scene 
is because the God of the Bible made that city stand at the center of history and at the very heart of his own purposes for this planet and all of the people of this planet. And it will be from that place, from the city of Jerusalem, from which he will have his last word. Because the Bible reveals that that last word will be spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ in the not-too-distant future, then what is happening is things just continue to escalate in that part of the world surrounding that piece of property on a daily basis because something's getting ready to happen there, y'all. You say, now you mean to tell me that you think that all that stuff is going on in, the, in that part of the world with all those nations and all those kings and all those presidents and you think all that's happening because because they know Jesus is getting ready to do something over there nope I don't think that for a minute I don't think those people have a clue or a care but now listen I do believe though that the spiritual powers that work above and through those nations and kingdoms and governments do know what's about to take place in that part of the world. And if that sounds just a little bit freaky to you, you know, what, what are you talking about? Spirit, power, working behind all of that? I, I'll just remind you that in Ezekiel chapter 28, the Lord addresses the king of Tyre, and as soon as he addresses him, as soon as he calls his name, it's more than apparent, that he immediately begins to talk to the spiritual power that was working behind him and through him. And that spiritual power in Ezekiel 28 that was working behind and through him was, was what power, folks? It was the power of Satan himself. In Daniel chapter 10, you remember Daniel is praying and fasting. We've talked a lot about this. Daniel is praying and fasting for 21 days, and he's waiting for God to send him the, the answer to his prayers Finally, after 21 days of prayer and fasting, here comes this angel down to him to answer, and he tells Daniel, he says, you know what, Daniel? God sent me to answer this prayer 21 days ago, but man, out there in the heavenlies, there's been some major stuff going on because the, the satanic power that has been designated over this place, over Persia, has been fighting with me for the last 21 days, and finally God got sick of it, and he sent Michael to take care of the chump, and so he's taking care of him right now while I'm coming down here to give you the answer. Now, I'm paraphrasing just a little bit, but if you go to check out Daniel chapter 10, that's exactly what's going on. And, and now listen, I'm afraid. I'm talking First Baptist, New Philadelphia. I'm afraid that sometimes we think that, well, you know what? All of that was just that, that old, you know, that weird Old Testament stuff that was going on. And, and we don't think that those kind of powers are operative in the world today. And you know what we do? We forget that the New Testament book written to teach the church about the church. And what book is that? The book of Ephesians. And we find in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 17, what, what it says in that passage, folks, and, and listen, what it tells us is that we better be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And what he says, and we better be sure that we put on 
The whole armor of God, if we plan to stand against the wiles of the devil, why? You know what that passage tells us? It tells us the reason we better be strong, we better have his power, and we better have his armor, is because there's another half of reality that we cannot see. It's just as real as the pew you're sitting in. It's just as real as the person sitting next to you. But there's another half of reality that you cannot see. And it's in that other half, in that spiritual dimension that we can't see, that he goes on in Ephesians chapter 6 to tell us that that's really where our warfare is because he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In other words, our real enemy is not people. That's what Frank was talking about this morning. It's not people. The enemy, the real enemy that we're dealing with is not one that you can see. You can't reach out and touch it. It's not a human enemy. He says that we're wrestling against principalities, against powers, against the the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness, in high places, and because of that, he tells us that our only hope is to get on the whole armor of God and stand in his power while we're praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And you see, I think that we have forgotten the the, the reality of what that passage is really saying to those of us that are living in this world in 1998 all that Daniel chapter 10 stuff that Ezekiel 28 stuff yeah that doesn't happen anymore Ephesians chapter 6 says it does and don't ever forget folks that Satan according to 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 what it says is that Satan is the God of what of this world listen to what that means It means he's the God of this world. It means that he is the one who is controlling the kingdoms of the world. Adam handed those kingdoms over to him 6,000 years ago. And you'll remember that when Jesus came along 4,000 years later, he went up into a mountain and he was praying and fasting. And Satan shows up there. And you remember what took place in that whole encounter? Satan walks him over and says, now now check out those kingdoms there. You see all that? Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. Make a deal with you. You bow down and worship me right now. We'll be done with this whole deal. And I'll give you those kingdoms. Now, you know what? When I first got saved, I used to think, no, come on, man. I mean, why why doesn't Jesus say, hey, chump, who you think you are? Who in the devil you think you are? There you go. Who in the devil you think you are going to be offering me the kingdoms of this world? You know why he didn't ask that? Because those kingdoms were in his possession. Hello? And I got news for you, folks. Are you still in Revelation 11? Those kingdoms don't come into the possession of the Lord Jesus Christ until the very end of the tribulation period which we'll see in chapter 11 right right here look at verse 15 when the seventh trumpet sounds okay now we're in the parentheses right now 
But when that seventh trumpet sounds, look at what it says. What happens? The kingdoms of this world, then, that's when they become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And not until then. It's not going to be until then, which means, hang with me now. What that means, y'all, is that right now, in 1998, there is still satanic power. I'm talking principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places that is working above and through and in the governments and the kingdoms and the leaders of this world. And yes, I believe that those powers are very, very dialed in to what's getting ready to happen in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. I think they know very well what's getting ready to happen in the city of Jerusalem in what can be as soon as seven years. And I hope that it is. Because that would mean the rapture take place today. And, and, and now listen. I, I'd love... You know what? If you've got another answer as to why the city of Jerusalem... Is that significant? Jot it down on a piece of paper and send it to me, okay? Because I'm just telling you. You can look at it from every conceivable angle, and what you're, I, I'm convinced the only explanation for that city playing such a, a vital role in the everyday affairs of modern man is because of just what we're talking about. The human personalities and powers, they may not know it, but I promise you, the satanic principalities and powers do. And I guarantee you, they know very well what's up. And the reason that, that I'm going into all of that this morning is you'll notice in verse 1, John says, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and then that worship therein, but the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two, two months. And what makes those verses so significant is those verses are letting us know what's really, really going to be going on, and what all this, this hoopla, if you will, is in 1998 over the city of Jerusalem. Okay, let me explain what I'm saying. Here we are this morning, folks. Is, is it May 24th? Okay, it's May 24th, 1998, and we are living right now at the very brink of the tribulation period beginning. Do you understand this? The tribulation period could begin today. Because the event that we're waiting for as believers in Jesus Christ is what is called the rapture of the church, where Jesus bodily removes off the face of this planet the people who know him. And that event ushers in the tribulation period. So, and that, that event can literally take place at any moment, even before this service is over. And according to verses 1 and 2, right here in, in Revelation chapter 11... At the midway point of the tribulation period, which again is 42 months into it, three and a half years, he's already defined for us here, 1260 days, and if you just figure it out, a biblical month is 30 days, and if you just multiply 
42 months of 30 days, what you come up with is 1,260. That's the days that he's talking about here. And the Lord tells him that at the midway point of the tribulation period, he tells John to take a reed and measure the temple. Okay? Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. That if he's going to measure it, there's got to be a temple there to measure, right? And what's interesting is that as of today, Sunday, May 24th, 1998, there is no temple there. God could not tell John this morning, go measure that temple because there is no temple there to measure. But I promise you, folks, if the rapture were to take place in the next 10 minutes, the temple would be sitting right in its proper location on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem within three and a half years, if not before, and John would be able to take his measuring rod and measure it just like he's instructed to do in verse 1. You say, well, now, how do you know that? I mean, how can, how can you be so sure? And I want to remind you of something that I've been showing you. Ever since we, we started the study of the book of Revelation, and it's a freaky thing, but the, the, the freaky thing about this whole book is that this is not a dream that he's having. He is not writing about a vision that he had. It, it isn't just a, a wild spiritual experience that he was having, though it was, certainly was that. But according to chapter 1 and verse 10, John was spiritually caught off of the face of this earth and was literally catapulted forward in time to the time period called biblically the day of the Lord. He was transported into the future, to a future time, and he wrote down in this book the things that were literally taking place before his very eyes. Do you understand that? That's why 35 different times in the book of Revelation, he says, I saw. That's why seven times in this book, he says, I beheld. That's why 23 times he said, I heard. You know why? Because he was actually seeing these events. He was actually hearing these events going on. You know why? Because he was there. He was actually watching them happen. He was experiencing these things. You say, okay, now, whoa, whoa, whoa. How could he have watched them happen if we're living 1,900 years after John wrote these things and none of these things have happened yet? How could that be? And the only way that I know to, to explain it to you is that the eternal God of the universe that according to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8 is a God that transcends time and space it says that he's the Alpha and Omega the beginning and the ending and he's both of those at the same time the verse goes on to say he is the one which was and is and is to come that is he is the past he's the present and the future and he's all three of those at the same time and obviously if he is the the one who is transcending time and space and he is that kind of a god then it's obviously no problem for him 
to allow John in this experience that he's having to likewise transcend time and space and actually see and experience these things. And as we see here in verse 1, you know what? He's even participating in these events. You see that? He's going down into the temple to measure the thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild. He's, he's measuring something that today doesn't exist, but it already has existed because he was there and he was measuring the thing. You see, and as far as our finite minds are, are, are concerned, that, that just, I mean, we, we just go, go tilt on that. But because of Revelation chapter 11 and verse 1, listen, I know, I know that the temple is going to be sitting in Jerusalem in the midpoint of the tribulation period. And, and you know what? I'm so sure about it. I would bet my eternal salvation on it. Because John's already been there in the tribulation period, and he's already measured it, and it was there. And some of you are thinking right now, that's nuts. Nope. That's God. And I'll tell you what, he's a whole lot bigger, he's much more infinite, and more incomprehensible than our finite human minds have ever even imagined. If your mind is going tilt on all of that, you're understanding. Because you can't understand that part of God. He transcends Time. But that's not the only reason that I believe that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem in the very near future. Now, I, really, I don't need any more reasons than that, but there are some. And one of the key ones is this. It's the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ himself prophesied that that temple would be there. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 24. And you'll notice in verse 1 of this chapter... That the disciples are talking to the Lord about the buildings of the temple. Okay? Now the year is approximately 32 A.D., something like that. And I want you to notice what Jesus says to them in verse 2. Okay? And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all of these things? Okay, he's referring to the buildings of the, of the, of the temple. Hey, you, you see all these? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And you know what he does here? He prophesies the utter destruction of the temple to the point that he says there will not be a single stone that is left upon another. And folks, now listen. It would be less than 40 years when the general, the Roman general Titus would come in to the city of Jerusalem with his, his Roman legion. He comes into that city in 70 A.D. and they absolutely obliterated the city and the temple. And if you read the accounts of its destruction, it, what it says is as the temple burned, the gold ornaments that was in the temple uh, or were in the temple and, and the, the, the gold that had overlaid the, the walls and, and the floors as the fire burned, the intense heat of that fire began to cause that gold to melt and filled in the cracks between the stones of the temple. And in order to recover the gold, what Titus's army actually did is they took 
the temple apart stone by stone to be able to recover the gold out of that thing. And you know what? The prophecy was fulfilled exactly the way that Jesus said that it would. That's no surprise to us, is it? It's always the way that it happens. And again, it all happened in 70 A.D. And Jesus prophesied it here nearly 40 years before it happened. But watch what he goes on to say here in this very same context now. Jesus makes that prophecy in verse 2. And then in verse 3, the disciples start asking him, when the end of the world's going to come? And, and what would be the signs of his coming? And of course, they're talking now about his second coming. And as we've seen numerous times in this study, he answers their question by showing them the things that would be going on in the seven-year tribulation period. And of course, that seven-year period culminates with his second coming. All of what is going on in Matthew 24 is talking about the tribulation period. And in that context, okay, now, now think with me, in that context, right after prophesying the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., watch what Jesus says will happen during the tribulation period, just prior to his second coming in verse 15. He says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, where is that? That's in the temple. The temple in Jerusalem. And he says, now way out there in the tribulation period, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and check out what he says, whoso readeth, let him understand. In other words, he's going, you tracking with this? temple's going to be destroyed back here in 70 A.D. But by the time the tribulation period's kicking, the temple's going to be back there again. And you'll see in that holy place the abomination of Daniel, desolation. And, and Jesus says, just like Daniel prophesied, and, and he's quoting here Daniel 9.27. And if you go back and check it out, we won't take the time to do it right now. But what you'll find out is that Daniel said that three and a half years into the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist would come into the holy place in the temple and would commit what Jesus calls here the abomination of desolation. You say, well, what is that? Well, let me let the Bible define it for you. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and look at verse 3 because this is where it's defined. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And look at verse 3. He says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, that's the second coming, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, and that's referring to the Antichrist, listen, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth where? In the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's the abomination of desolation. Now listen, in order for it to happen in the tribulation period, just like Daniel said it would, just like Jesus said it would, just like Paul says here that it would, somewhere along the way, that temple that was destroyed in 70 A.D. is going to have to be rebuilt. 
And, and what I want to show you here, or what, what I'm trying to get you to see here, is that in the very, very, very near future, folks, there is going to be a major showdown that is going to be taking place in this very special place that we've been talking about this morning, in the city of Jerusalem, and even more specifically, in the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And really to understand the significance of all of this and why in 1998, without all of the people of this world even realizing it, this place for some strange reason has captured the attention of the entire world. But, but I, what I want to do is I, I want to just take you back and I want to piece together a lot of things in the Bible and show you a lot of things that have happened throughout history that explain to us what's behind the things that we're seeing in Revelation chapter 11. Not only the things we're seeing in Revelation chapter 11, but the things that we'll watch on CNN this afternoon and tomorrow and next week and for the next several months until the Lord comes. And then it's really going to escalate. It's the stuff that's going to tell you why we read about the stuff we read about in our morning paper every week. And I want you to go back with me to a passage I've already mentioned to you. In Ezekiel 28, now if you've been in this, this fellowship for any period of time, you're well acquainted with this very, very key chapter of the Bible. Now we're dealing with one, of course, in Revelation chapter 11, but Ezekiel 28, and, and we really don't have the time to, to exhaust this, and I'm just going to try to hit the high points. And, and again, now don't, don't flake out on me if you, if you think you already got Ezekiel 28 down, because we're going to tie this into a whole arena that you've never, never seen before. Some of you, 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 need to, you need to hang on every word right now if you've never been into Ezekiel 28 and find out what's, what's really going on here. But now listen, if you're going to ever really understand the Bible, it's just like every other book of the, in the world, folks, you've got to understand the theme of it. Now, when we started the book of Revelation, we spent some time talking about the, the theme of, of the book of Revelation. We talked about the theme of the Bible, and they just happen to be the, the same. But you've got to understand that the theme of the Bible, and I'm telling you, if you were to take the next, you know, 10 trillion Christians and ask them this question, they're all going to give you some different answer. They're going to talk about, well, it's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself, or, you know, something along those lines. But if you're really going to understand the Bible, what you've got to be able to see is the fact that the Bible, the theme of the Bible, is all about a throne. It's all about a kingdom, okay? Now, maybe some of you can already see where we're going with this. That's the theme of the entire book. Listen, the Bible opens, as far as chronology is concerned, it opens here in Ezekiel chapter 28. And you know where, how it opens? Listen, it opens with a struggle over a throne. Let's jump ahead. When the Bible ends, it ends with somebody seated on a throne. And everything between that struggle that happened here in Ezekiel 28 and what ends in the book of Revelation, everything that, that happens between that that we call history is nothing more than the unfolding of who's actually going to sit there. In Ezekiel 28, and I've already mentioned this passage to you this morning, he, he is addressing the king of Tyre in, in verse 12. And he, he says, moreover, in verse 11, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, 
Thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, you already start to wonder whether or not this could be an earthly king that would fit that description. You know that he's not just referring to an earthly king. By the time you get to verse 14, look at it. He tells him, thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. And what you begin to see is he's talking to an earthly king, but he's really talking to the power that was working behind him and through him. And it was the one who sealed up the sum, who was full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, and was the anointed cherub that covered, that was closest, if you will, to the throne of God. And if you'll notice in verse 13, it says of him that every precious stone was thy covering. Now this is back when he was the anointed cherub that covereth. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, and the onyx, and the jasper, and the sapphire, and the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. He is made up of all of these beautiful jewels. And what you begin to find out is this is none other than Lucifer. His name means light bearer. He is comprised of these beautiful jewels. Every time you see God in the Bible reveal himself for who he is, he shows up as blazing, blinding, glorious light. Here is the anointed cherub that covers, made of these incredible jewels. And what happens is the light of God passes through this incredible cherub, this one named Lucifer, the light bearer, and it passes and floods the entire universe with the glory of God. And then you'll go on in verse 13 and you find that he was also made up of musical instruments and he describes those musical instruments there. And if you'll cross-reference over into the book of Job, chapter 38, in verse 7, what you'll find out is that there were a group of beings that God created, angelic beings who were called sons of God. And they were worshiping God. They were singing his praise. Lucifer, made up of these musical instruments, is the worship leader in eternity past. He radiates the glory of God throughout the universe. He plays the music as the worship leader over these angelic beings who are called sons of God. And the entire universe, folks, is flooded with the praise and glory and honor of God himself. An incredible scene. And a lot of people understand that, but what they miss is where he was when he carried out that ministry. Look at verse 13. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. You know where he was when he carried out that ministry where every precious stone was his covering and he radiated the glory of God and he led these angelic beings to worship God with the musical instruments that God had used to create him with? You know where he was? He was in Eden before Adam ever got there. A lot of people miss that. And what you begin to see in verse 17 it says, thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. You know what? There came a day where Lucifer said, you know what? I've been checking this thing out, boys. And you know what? Nobody is quite as special as me. Nobody quite as beautiful as me. And I've figured this thing out. In order to look at him, they've got to look at me. And he got an eye problem. And you find this out in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. This is what he said. I will... I, I, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt, listen to this, I will exalt my throne. I'll exalt my throne 
above the stars of God. And he goes on to an, uh, three other I wills in that passage. I'm trying to get you to see. He's in Eden, and he's sitting on a what? He's sitting on a throne, and where is that throne, y'all? In Eden. And from there, he carries out this incredible ministry in leading sons of God to worship and praise God, okay? And what we find out is that because his heart was lifted up, that Lucifer lost his position as the anointed cherub that, that covers... But one thing you never want to forget is he still possesses more power than any other created being. He lost his throne on the earth, though as we've already seen, he's still the God of this world. He lost his name, and he's no longer Lucifer, the light bearer, though he still manifests himself as an angel of, of light. But now, according to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, he's called that old serpent called the devil and Satan. And what we find from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3 and verse 6, is God took that original earth. Now listen, he took that original earth, and it says in 2 Peter 3, 6, the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Can that, you got that? That world, where Lucifer held that position, it was overflowed with water and perished. Now go to Genesis chapter 1. And if you understand that, what we just talked about, then you understand a whole lot better than your average bear what was going on in Genesis chapter 1 in verse 2. Because here is this earth that had been submerged in water. And look at what it says in verse 2. And the earth was without form and void. And if you'll check out Isaiah 45 and verse 18. Listen, Isaiah 45, verse 18. You know what it tells you? That when God created it, it wasn't created without form and void. But it's without form and void here. You know why? 2 Peter 3, 6. It's been submerged in water. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Okay, you, you tracking with me now? Okay? And, and so now, now check this out. What we begin to see here is God begins to move upon the face of this, this planet that had been submerged in water. He's moving upon the face of the deep. And listen, folks. When he does that, every spirit being in the universe, including Satan himself, would have been going, something's up, y'all. They know something monumental is about to happen. Now, we don't know how long that earth was submerged in that water. Could have been a million years. Could have been 10 minutes. Doesn't matter. But when he moves upon the face of the deep, on that planet that had already been inhabited at one time, everybody knows something's up. And what you begin to see is, is what God does here in, in Genesis, the rest of Genesis chapter 1. In the first five days, we see the recreation of the earth, and he restores the earth 
You know why? Because God's moving. God is enacting a plan. And all the preparation of what has been taking place in those first five days all has to do with something real significant that's going to take place on the sixth day. Okay? So you see this? God moves upon the face of the deep. And he recreates the earth and restores it to enact his plan because something's getting ready to happen on that sixth day. Now I want you to keep in mind now that here's this entire planet and God's got anywhere on this planet that he wants to choose from to enact his plan. Now he, he could have done it in North America, could have done it in South America, Australia, anywhere you want. You know where he chose? See, you, you already, you, you guys are Bible scholars, man. You, you already know before I even tell you. You know where he, where he chose? He chose a, a particular place that was called Eden, the Garden of God, a place where Lucifer once was, a place where Lucifer once had a, a throne, okay? And if we took the time this morning to cross-reference this thing, and obviously, with the hour where it is, we won't take that time. You, but we, we can give you the cross-references and, and show you where they're at. But, but, but now listen, if we took the, the time this morning, what we would find out is this thing that is called Eden, the Garden of God, the Garden of Eden, is a pretty huge piece of property. If you begin to look and you cross-reference it through the Bible, what you'll find is that the top of this place called Eden is what we would know as Mount Ararat, okay? Down over here, that, that left side of, of, the, of the triangle that it forms is the Nile. And if you go just straight east for a thousand miles, you'll be over here at Ur, at the top of the, what we would call the Persian Gulf. And it's a triangular piece of property, and that piece of property is what we call today the Fertile Crescent, okay? And God is, is going to enact His plan once again in this specific location in Eden, the Garden of God. And look at what it says in verse 26. <clears throat> and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And, and you know what God's doing? Is God's enacting his plan and he used Lucifer at one time to have a throne in Eden and now he's putting a new king in Eden one who is going to have dominion over everything on the earth who is it that has dominion it's a king he's putting new king in Eden okay and, and he's got a commission for him in verse 28 he wants him to be fruitful and to multiply and replenish the earth you see and he's God's gonna put back whole new slew of worshipers fill this planet once again with worshipers but Adam I'm going to give you the privilege to do that yourself you'll need a bride in order to do it so he causes a sleep to fall upon him he takes from his side a rib fashions it into a woman and puts them together for the purpose of replenishing this earth so that they could create beings who would love God worship God Praise God. Glorify God. And that's what's going on here. But now check this out. God says, we're going to make man. When we make him, we'll make him like us. Check out Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. You know what it says? And the Lord God 
took up the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul okay God says we're gonna make man when we make him we'll make him like us what's God like he's three and yet he's one you come to Genesis chapter 2 in verse 7 and you find the three parts of man that comprise him as a one soul person check this out he takes up the dust of the ground what part of the man did he make physical part you croak you go back to that same dust okay he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life that same word breath is translated other places throughout the Old Testament spirit he breathed the spirit into man and man became a living soul an eternal being with a with a soul and you know what he did he made man just like him there's a physical part of the Godhead that's the Lord Jesus Christ there's a spirit part of the Godhead it's the Holy Spirit of God there is a soulish part that's represented in the Father God the Father three and yet one but now check it out okay if you're God you've already been in Eden before and you've already set a throne there and you've already put a very very special creation there to lead sons of God to worship you from there and he becomes Satan the devil you know what it means adversary he's become your adversary you submerge that earth into the water and then you're gonna come back to that same planet and you're gonna start just carving away some stuff here to reenact a plan that's gonna include human beings and you got anywhere in Eden now we know it's in Eden you got anywhere in Eden to choose from to pull that dust your God where you can pull that dust right where there used to be a throne God says watch this homie he takes that dust he fashions that into an incredible being who has the opportunity with his bride to populate this planet and I promise you as soon as that Adam as soon as that man came out of the dust of that ground he was the sworn enemy of that guy, of Lucifer, of Satan. And you know what happens. Serpent. Serpent shows up. You know why he shows up in Genesis chapter 3? This is his stomping grounds. This is where he was. This is where his throne was. He's watched God reenact a plan, take that man. He knows the plan of God. He knows what's getting ready to happen. He's got to find a way to stop that plan. And you know, he gets the bride over by herself. She eats of the fruit, gives to her husband. He did eat. Bam! They die spiritually and they lose the ability to populate this planet with sons of God. But God comes down into that garden in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And he says, that's cool. But my plan's still going to go on. And what you find in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 is a prophecy concerning the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and the fact that he would crush the head of Satan through what he would come to this planet and ultimately do when he came at his second coming. It's sitting right there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And what we begin to find out, now, now track with me, okay? Don't, don't let me lose you here. Okay, now listen. God's, God says, 
I'm still going to I'm I'm still going to fulfill my plan. I'm still going to do that thing and what we begin to find out through the Old Testament is that plan was going to be accomplished through a nation. And in Genesis chapter 12, God calls out a guy by the name of Abram. He's going to make his name Abraham and he tells Abram, he says, "Now listen, I'll make of thee a great nation. What is that nation going to be, y'all? It's going to be Israel, okay? And in Genesis chapter 15, you know, and, and I'm begging you, hang with me right now. This is not really tough to, to, to understand. I'm telling you, it'll come together for you here if you'll just listen. He says, I'm going to fulfill this plan through a nation. I'll make of you, Abram, I'll make of you a great nation. In Genesis chapter 15, God promises Abram, a land. Guess where it is, y'all? It's the same place where Lucifer's throne once was. It's the same place where there was a pile of dust. If you check out Genesis chapter 15, you check out the dimensions of the land grant that was promised to Abraham, the promised land, you know what you find out? It's that same exact piece of property the rest of Genesis you know what it's about it's all about God forming this this nation out of a people which was in bondage in Egypt and then we go to the next book of the Bible and God brings them out in the book of Exodus and they began heading for a piece of property they began heading for a homeland the land of promise and on the way there God says now listen I want to let you know something. I, my desire is to dwell among you. I want to have a settled place there. As you're making your way to this, 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 this land that I promised, I, I, want, I want to be there. There's a, there's a certain place where I want to meet with you. And so you know what he does? He takes Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to make me a, a tabernacle. And, and when you guys go to camp somewhere, I want, want you to set this tabernacle up because... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the instructions for a thing that's called the Ark of the Covenant. And, and, and Moses didn't understand all of what we know because he didn't have the book of Hebrews to tell him. But this Ark of the Covenant is what represented in the true tabernacle, which is in the heaven. It represented the throne of God. And he says, what I want to do is in that tabernacle, I want to have that Ark of the Covenant that represents my presence in, in your midst. And I'm, there's going to be a special place in that tabernacle that's called the Holy of Holies. And I want you to put that Ark of the Covenant in there. And I'll be there. And you can fellowship with me. But I want my name to dwell there. So God has this mobile home, if you will. It's called the tabernacle. First mobile home in the Bible. And it goes with the people of God, wherever he goes. And so then God brings them into their land. God gives them a king, a guy by the name of David. And before David's life is all over, you know what David's going to have a burden to do? He's going to have a burden to take that mobile home and turn it into a permanent dwelling place. You know what he wants to do? He wants to build a temple. God says, Dave, it's a great idea. It's just you're not the man to do it. Because you're a bloody man. You've got blood on your hands. And you can't do it. 
But I'll tell you what, I'll have, let, let you gather the materials, but your son's going to be the one that's going to build it. Okay? So what we find out in Israel's history is God was going to put up a permanent dwelling place. And he was going to take that Ark of the Covenant and he was going to put it in the Holy of Holies in that permanent place. Where you reckon it was? You got any place you can choose, but you know where he chose? A city called Jerusalem. A special little place. And I believe beyond any shadow of a doubt, that place was right where a throne once was. It was right where a pile of dust once was and God says I'm going to park myself right on that place and that's where I'll meet with you and that's where I'll dwell with you and, and would you would you turn over to first Kings I've only got another hour to go <laughs> I want you to check out first Kings chapter 9 Solomon has just prayed a dedicatory prayer for this, this house of God. And I want you to check this out, man. And the Lord said unto him, verse 3 of chapter 9, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I've hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever and mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually wow I, mean, I don't know what that does to you buddy but you can trace through history that piece of ground has become the most contested piece of real estate on this entire planet you know why? Because God's heart is there. Because God's eyes are there. Check this out. Because God's Son will someday sit right there. If you check it out in Ezekiel chapter 47 and 48, listen. The same piece of ground that was promised to Abraham is the same piece of ground that Israel has in the millennium. Jesus is going to have a throne. It's going to be in Jerusalem. It will be where Lucifer's throne once was, where a pile of dust once was, where the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies once was. It's God's special place on this planet. And folks, the reason that Jerusalem is the focal point of the world is God is moving there. And so is Satan. Do you understand now why Satan in the person of the Antichrist, like we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, do you understand now why he's going to go into that temple in Jerusalem, into the Holy of Holies, and he's going to sit on that throne? 
Do you understand now why? It's where a throne once was. It's where that pile of dust once was that represents humanity that he hates because they are fulfilling the plan of the universe. It's that place where the Holy of Holies once was and it's where the Lord Jesus Christ will rule and reign over all of the earth and it is from that place where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And the Psalms say, and all of the earth will sing unto his name. Does that sound familiar? That's where this whole thing started. With somebody sitting on a throne and all of the inhabitants of the earth singing his praise and bowing and worshiping. And it's all coming back to that special place. Now, some of you, I know you need to go. If you need to go, go ahead. I can't quit right now, okay? We get just a little bit more, okay? But now I want you to understand something. Okay, God says, I'm going to do this in this, this nation. But God warned the nation of Israel, okay? He said, now listen, I want you to know something. If you forget me, and if you move into idolatry, I want you to know something. And, and, and now just listen. I was going to take you to these places. We don't have time, but please listen intently. He tells them in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verses 64 through 66, it says, And the Lord shall scatter thee. He's talking about the nation of Israel. I'm going to fulfill my plan through you, but I want you to know something. You go into idolatry and you forget me. The Lord shall scatter thee among all people from one end of the earth even unto the other. And among these nations shalt thou find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest. But the Lord shall give thee a trembling heart and failing of eyes and sorrow of mind, and thy life shall hang in doubt before thee. And thou shalt fear day and night and shall have none assurance of life. In Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 9 and 10, God says, And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all pl places whither I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their forefathers. And then in Hosea chapter 9 and verse 17, it says, My God will cast them away because they did not hearken unto him and they shall be wanderers among the nations. God says, now you follow me, I'll scatter you from one end of this globe to the other, and you'll not find peace until I say you can have peace. And folks, now, now listen, all of this culminates in 70 A.D. when Titus comes into the city of Jerusalem and he levels that temple and you know what happened to God's people exactly what God said they were scattered from one end of the earth to the other but now listen in spite of what God prophesied concerning them God made a monumental claim in Jeremiah chapter 30 in verse 11 listen to what it says God said for I am with thee saith the Lord to save thee though I make a full end of all nations whither I have scattered thee Yet will I not make a full end of thee? He says, you know what? 
I may destroy the nations that you end up being scattered in, but you know what? I've got my eye on you, and I'll make sure that you never come to the point to where you as a people are wiped out. And I want you to know something. That was a monumental claim that God was making there in Jeremiah 30 and verse 11 because there has never been a people on this planet that has been removed from their homeland that has ever maintained their identity. But check out this. Listen, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 21. It says, And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. God says, you forget me, I'll scatter you throughout the whole earth, but I won't forget you. You'll maintain your identity, and there will come a time where I'll gather you from all of the places all over the world, and I'll bring you back into that land once again. And folks, for 1,800 years... On this planet, those people were scattered. They were a reproach. They were all the things that God had prophesied. And you know what? After 1,800 years, that would have put us at the end of the, the 1800s, the 19th century. They still had a whole lot more pain to be going through. But listen, something began to happen right at the turn of the century, folks. God began to move. To fulfill this promise and what happened was this a man by the name of Theodore Herzl Theodore Herzl he's a Jew he began to get a burden about his people coming back into the homeland and what was begun on this planet was called the Zionist movement and he gets some fellow Jews and what they begin to do is they begin to pray that God will give them back that homeland that was promised to them in the Old Testament. They held in 1899 the first Zionist Congress. And at that point, the promised land that they're praying that would be theirs was in, uh, being held by the Turks. It had been held by them for 400 years, but here these guys are, just a little small band of prayer warriors that are praying for that homeland. In 1917, the League of Nations offered them a piece of property in North Central Africa. And they said, thank you very much. But God promised us a piece of property. And we want the one that God told us to take. They said, no, we don't, we don't, we don't want that. Well, World War I kicks in, and Germany has got their, their naval force out to stop, listen, the flow of nitrates from South Africa to England. England, the dominant power in the world along with the United States during World War I, England is desperately in need of these nitrates. The Germans are making sure that the nitrates cannot come in. They need those nitrates in order to make their gunpowder. So Sir Winston Churchill contacts uh, a chemist that he knows. He tells him about the, the dilemma that he has. This chemist is a man by the name of Wiseman. He tells him about the situation, and what Wiseman does is he invents a type of gunpowder that can be made without the nitrates that the Germans are making sure that the Great Britain can't get. Now, he makes this thing, 
And as you know, I mean, the rest is history. England, of course, wins the war. And they say, you know, we really appreciate what you did for us there. Now, is there anything that we could, we could do for you? Well, Wiseman just happened to be a Jew. He just happened to be a Zionist. He just happened to be a guy praying for a homeland. And you know what happened in World War I? England took possession of a little piece of property in the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea called Palestine. It had formerly been held by the Turks. In World War I, it comes into the possession of England. And they say, now, is there anything we could do for you? Wiseman says, you know, I want a national homeland for my people. And in 1917, the Balfour Declaration was signed, opening Palestine for Jewish immigration. And for the first time in 1900 years, the Jews were allowed to come home. In 1918, listen, in 1918, the first Jews actually arrived. That was the conception. And what you find in the Bible is the age of maturity, is the age when Jesus began his public ministry because he was matured. And how old was he? It was 30 years. 1918 was the conception. It was going to be a period of maturing for 30 years when a guy that is a perfect picture of the Antichrist by the name of Adolf Hitler comes on the scene. And for some reason, he hates Jews. I wonder why. Something getting ready to happen in that piece of property. And he exterminates over six million Jews in that 30-year maturation process. But you know what's going to happen? For what he does to those Jews in that 30-year period, that group of people are going to gain the sympathy of the entire world. And after 30 years, after they were conceived, 1948, 30 years from the time the first boatload arrived, the nation of Israel puts up a flag in our nation for the first time since 70 A.D. We don't have time to get into all of this, but I want you to listen. Though they came into that homeland, they didn't have the city of Jerusalem. And now we're moving a little closer to most of our lifetime. Some of you young people, you've heard about this. Most of us lived through this, didn't have a clue what was going on. In 1967, there was a war that was taking place. Seven Arab nations had set themselves to come against the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was so totally outmanned, it was unbelievable. They were outplanned, they were outtanked, they were outplaned, they were out everything. Except for God. They won the war, and it was called, what? The Six-Day War. 
You know what happened on the seventh? God rested from all the work which he had done. You know why? He wanted them to have that piece of property. And folks, I want you to know something. Right now this morning, and I've watched footage of it within the last week, in the city of Jerusalem, priestly garments have already been made. Plans for that temple have already been made. You can, you can look at, and I'll show, make me show you this within the next couple of weeks. You, you can see a model of it. You can go in. You, I, I've got footage of them going in, showing priests being trained in the sacrificial system that takes you back into the book of Leviticus. It's all going on. They've got the cornerstone sitting there just waiting for that moment. And I promise you, it's going to happen. Just like Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 says it will. Because our boy John's going to be coming in there. Measuring that thing. And I promise you, it's going to happen going to happen real soon. And listen, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, let me tell you something. When you see the fig tree beginning to bud some leaves, it tells you summer's coming. He says, well, when you see the fig tree, the fig tree in the Bible of the nation of Israel, when you see that fig tree beginning to put forth buds y'all start looking up because it's real close in fact he says that generation won't pass away I don't know where you want to start counting but in 1967 they took possession of Jerusalem that special place where a throne once was a pile of dust the Ark of the Covenant once was sitting over the Holy of Holies. And it won't be too long before the King of Kings is going to sit on that throne. And we'll be back with him, worshiping him for a period of a thousand years. Before he does, Satan's going to get his behind on that throne. And that's when all hell can break loose on this planet. Lord, I pray that you take this. We've gone a whole lot longer than I intended. But I do pray you take it this morning to help all of us to get ourselves positioned and ready for what you're going to do on this planet. May it be the longing of our heart. Oh, when we see all of what has happened to us, that has unfolded through history and, and we're, we're living at the very period of time where all of this is coming together and soon for the first time in 6,000 years you're going to be getting the glory that you deserve you will sit on that throne and we will be your worshipers oh God we long for that 
And I pray, Lord, that those that are here this morning that don't know you as their Savior, I pray that this morning you would take the Word of God that has gone forth from this place, and I pray that you would use it to convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And I pray, Father, that you would draw men and women and young people to yourself today before it is too late. our heads still bowed if God is speaking to you right now about your need to receive Jesus Christ before it's too late and I can promise you based on 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 that once you have had the opportunity to receive the word of truth and you reject it because you have pleasure and unrighteousness in other words you don't want Jesus messing up your life once the rapture takes place you will be sent strong delusion where you will believe the lie of the Antichrist. And so I say to you this morning, if God is speaking to your heart, respond now while you still have time, while His invitation is still open to you.